Welcome to the first episode of Tell Me What to Say. This begins a series of conversations about conversation. The guests will be people from all walks of life, from medicine to entertainment, from spirituality to fashion, from public service, politics, and education, to name a few. Our guest today is the chief operating officer of one of the most valuable companies in the world. She is a two-time New York Times bestselling author and a world-renowned thought leader on life in the workplace. In our talk, which was recorded recently at Facebook headquarters, we touch on a variety of issues, ranging from the dynamics of giving and receiving feedback at work and at home, at the power of language to deplete or enhance people. And we walk into some very difficult territory of talking about the death of her husband, Dave, and the enormous lessons she has taken and shared from that tragic loss. For her to sit with me, even for a few minutes, and share her perspectives on these issues was both practical and uplifting. And now... Here's my conversation with Cheryl Sandberg. Good afternoon, Cheryl. Glad to be with you. I Thanks for having say, me. I'm, I am grateful for the time that you're taking here uh, to contribute to, to this discussion. Um, I always start off every guest with the same question. Uh, and there's a, a method behind the madness, but I'm, I always find the answers very interesting. And that's when you were a child, a kid, growing up, do you recall what you wanted to be? You know, I, I, I've been asked this before, and I don't have a great answer. I think I knew what I didn't want to be, oh. which was I didn't want to be a doctor. My father's a doctor, and then my brother and sister are both physicians. They right. both became doctors. They came after I was. And I think it's because I, I considered myself bad at science. And I think looking back at it, I don't think I was bad at science. <laughs> I think I wasn't encouraged in science, and I think it's the same old gender stuff that girls still face today. Got it. Now, I like my job, so I'm glad I'm not a doctor. Right. <laughs> um, and there are plenty of doctors in my family. We don't need more, and they, they do a great job. Um, but I do look back on that and think that's really interesting. And one of the things that probably still hasn't changed enough from when I was a kid to when I sit here with you today yeah. Interesting. Hey, when you, you mentioned the word encouraged, that you weren't encouraged uh, to be a doctor, I'm assuming you, were there moments of encouragement that you received that did put you in a certain direction that are conversations, so to speak? Well, my dad certainly would have wanted me to be a doctor, so it wasn't at home. I mean, one of the things I've thought about is I liked math. And when I was in, I think, ninth or 10th grade, I went to a math contest on a weekend that my teacher said, there's a math contest, you should go. And I went, and there were no other girls. And uh, I just said to my math teacher, well, they're, they're, girls don't do this. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but he kind of agreed with me. Hmm. Yep, a lot of boys here. What, what didn't happen was, well, that's why we need more girls. And I think these messages girls get about math and science being for boys are still alive and well, unfortunately. Mm. And they were probably even more alive and well when I was, you know, in school. Um, I did like oratory contests when mm -hmm. I was in sixth grade. So I was encouraged to be, you know, a speaker, a writer, right. all of the verbal stuff. And again, yeah. I think that's pretty stereotypically female. Got it. Got it. Okay. 
Speaking of conversations, as we advance now in, in your career, um, since we actually met uh, actually back in the mid-90s, uh, and we first crossed paths, but ever since then in your career, um, you've been a, a staunch advocate uh, in terms of workplace communication uh, about the giving and receiving of feedback. Um, I've heard many stories, read many things that all place you squarely as a as a, a big advocate for that. Now, obviously, that's a place that I've grown to make a living as well, so we're in violent uh, agreement there. The nuances, though, of feedback is what I'd like to talk about a little bit. Um, I have clients ask me lots of questions about how to do it. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, it can be so scary. They throw up a lot of reasons, and I'm curious as to what you would say if you got asked some of these questions. For example, is there a difference in your mind between giving feedback at work and giving feedback at home? Well, it's fun to have this conversation with you because I think you were one of the first people who ever did kind of a 360 review yes. on me. I was at McKinsey. I was a young associate. I just graduated from um, business school. And I I had had a job before business school for two years, but there wasn't really a formal review process. And this was like the first feedback yep. I got. And I found it super interesting. And right. I hope, at least my memory of it was I was very eager to learn. And I hope you that were. was true. You were. Um, but I remember being like, wow, people are like talking about me when I'm not there and saying things. And so I do think feedback is something that we don't necessarily teach people to take. I mean, I remember, you know, as a middle school girl, you would be in that, like, the circle with your friends where you all told each other what you really thought, and it inevitably went very badly. Yes. Um, I've tried to do better with my kids. So my daughter and I took a Girls Leadership Institute workshop, which I highly recommend to anyone who can find one in their area. You can mm. go online and find it. But it's actually about teaching girls to talk to the other girls. Right and be leaders. And it really is, they, they don't use the word feedback because right. it's, it's for elementary school girls. Yeah. And I think they do middle school and high school too. But it is, when you're angry at a friend, don't text. Don't mm -hmm. tell the other girl that you're angry at the first girl. Tell, tell her. Learn to speak your mind. Learn to say how you feel. Mm. Not you did something wrong. right? Think about a child, an elementary school child giving feedback. Right. Not, you know, you did something wrong, but I felt bad when you did X. Um, so I've certainly tried to do it. My mom was pretty incredible at this. Even as very young children, she taught my brother and sister and I to what she called mirror. Mm. What mirror means, and I do it with my kids I have since they were very young, is, you know, you took my ball. And then the other kid has to say, I hear that you're upset because you think I took your ball. Mm. You have to repeat back before you can say, actually, I didn't take the ball at oh, all. It right. fell across the room. Or, right. but, but the idea of being able to really listen actively. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's hugely important, both at home and at work, that we teach people how to give each other, quote, feedback, right. which is be honest and authentic and tell people how they can help us and how we can help them. As, as people grow older, though, uh, and get jobs in places like this, I would imagine, at least my experience is, it's tougher the older they get to imbue some of this empathy, to imbue some of this patience and listening into grown-ups. Do you find that to be the experience, or do you do you apply mirror here at where you work or anywhere as you as you go around? 
Well, it is hard. And I think we have a responsibility to our children, to uh, kids, to make sure they haven't always only been pat on the back. Mm-hmm. I remember when my, uh, my son, my first child, was going to kindergarten. And there was like the assembly. And we went to public school. Um, and, you know, they were asked, some parent asked, what can you do to prepare your child for kindergarten? Mm. And the answer the principal gave was disappointment. Mm. Make sure you have said no. And obviously there are a lot of kids who are really struggling out there and hear no all the time, you know, and have really, really serious challenges. I think a lot of us as parents try to protect our kids from challenges. And that's coming from a really good place. But I think we can protect kids too much. And I think making sure that, you know, they know that there are things they can do that will be easier for other kids. There are mistakes they make. Knowing how to say they're sorry early Mm -hmm. really helps. Good. So let's let's go to work um, and, and come to the workplace. Something that I see happening a lot uh, and curious is as you watch people uh, hear and hear about other places, um, I see people doing feedback, uh, providing negative feedback at times, which, as we agree, has to be done. But they do it on email. And I'm curious what your reaction is to that, knowing, you know, how technology can play in communicating. Um, but what's your reaction to people who do that? Well, I can tell from the tone of your voice that this is probably not something you're recommending. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. I was trying to be more subtle than that. But, but I would say that the most important thing about feedback is that it's real time and pretty constant. And so I'm sure it is a better idea, and that's what you teach people, to do it in person, make sure it's nuanced, and email can be, I'm I'm sure, a bad idea. I know email, I tell people all the time, if you're angry, don't email. Um, I still think email feedback quickly is probably better than no feedback. Because the most important thing about feedback cycles at work, in my view, is that you need examples that one of the things people do is they wait till the six month or one year performance review cycle. They give performance on their peers and they say, you know, he can be difficult to work with. Okay, well, give the person an example. Well, I don't want to give the person an example because it will, you know, show who I am. The problem is absent an example when you say to someone, you're difficult to work with. Right. Even if the person's completely open to it, they say, great, how? Well, I can't tell you. Right. And so what really helps all of us improve is when it is real time, right. real time. And so I'm sure email is not always the best idea, but I'm going to argue that real time is more important than the form. Because it certainly can start real time, but even not, but even. I'm just wondering what the person does once they read the email. Do they then email back? But that's a, that is a slippery slope, you'd agree. You'd want to have a conversation Conversations, about it. Conversations, yeah. uh, Pretty soon. Conversations are better. The thing about feedback is the more you do it, the more you do it, and the less of a big deal it is. So if no one ever gives anyone negative feedback or constructive criticism or suggestions for improvement, the day you do it, it's the hugest deal in the world, and you're sitting on the edge of your chair for your performance review. But if it's constant, and if it is positive and negative. Both. 
hey, you did a great job in that meeting. And then the next time, I thought you, you missed this point. Right. It becomes something that's expected and much less of a big deal. Yeah. So what I've tried to do at Facebook, and we're still working at it, I think this is always a work in progress, is make hard, hard conversations part of the conversation we have on a regular basis. Got it. You just answered the third nuance, because I was really wondering, because everyone comes to me and says, it's really hard where we work to be able to give my boss feedback. And you just, you just explained one very good tactic to be able to create an environment where feedback flows upward. But that is the, probably the number one question I get. How am I supposed to give my boss, terrible word, male or female, but uh, how am I supposed to give my boss feedback? I'm going to get in trouble. I'm, literally, people are worried they're going to get fired if they speak up. And really, it is up to leadership. Great leaders are looking for feedback. Great managers are looking for feedback. So really, my answer is your boss should be asking for it. The problem is, as you and I both know, everyone's boss isn't asking for it. So the question is, how do you open up that conversation? A couple of thoughts. One is asking for feedback yourself is one way of opening up a feedback conversation. A good boss, a good leader, you know, will always ask for feedback as well, you know, if I give you feedback now, again, not everyone's going to do that, but sentences like, I want to make sure we can work together as productively as possible. I want to help your team. If it's your boss, I want to help as much as possible. I really would like some feedback on you and how I can do better. And if it's okay, I'd like to share some thoughts I have on ways we can work together better to kind of warm it up. Hopefully the person will say yes. Um, the way you say it, you know, you're mean to me, that's, that's accusatory and yeah. nonspecific. But, you know, it hurt my feelings when you said this yesterday. That doesn't accuse them of doing anything. You're explaining how you feel, right. and it's in this specific. Got it. Got it. And I'm not saying it's going to work on every boss. No. But it's going to work better than you're mean to me. Exactly. Exactly. No, none of this work. People always ask me, well, if I try this and it doesn't go well, what do I do? And I say, well, the challenge is you're entering into the conversation, assuming it's not going to go well. But what if it does go well? Just change the question. It helps open you up a little bit to more possibility. But most people are not that um, optimistic at times going into feedback sessions. But off of feedback for a second, let me go on to another one. Um, In all the years that you've done what you've done, What's the hardest thing for you to learn that you've had to learn about being uh, better at conversation? Um, For me, it's to slow down. Mm. If I'm going to make a mistake today, I'm going to go too fast. I'm going to say too much. I think knowing the error of our, like the direction of your errors is actually really important. I don't know anyone who half the time says too little and half the time says too much. I know a ton of people who say too little, and I know a ton of people who say too much. I put myself in the say too much camp. If I mess up today, I'll be too direct, say too much. I don't know anyone really who goes too slow half the time and too quickly the other half. I know a whole bunch of people that move too slowly and a whole bunch of people who move too quickly. I'm going to move too quickly. You're going to go too fast. You know, I tell people, um, there there are some people I've worked with, both men and women, but often women, who their voice literally isn't loud enough in a room. And I have said to them, in order to have the right volume, you're going to feel like you're screaming. Mm -hmm. Your goal Mm -hmm. is to get someone to tell you you're too loud. That's right. 
never happens. But by striving for too loud, they're going to get to the right volume. Mm -hmm. You know, every so often and really not that frequently, someone will say to me, I wish you had spoken up more in that meeting. Really? Very infrequently. But when it happens, I'm like, victory. I I think knowing the direction of your errors and trying to overcorrect often gets us to the middle. Got it. I was, uh, in one of the previous podcasts, I I interviewed um, Atul Gawande about his book, The Checklist Manifesto. And he noted that the research that has changed surgical outcomes uh, has been for those surgical teams to, in essence, pause and to check with each other in a slower way, to use your word. I'm curious, as you look around these halls and you think about the places you watch, you said you have slow and you have fast. Could Could most of these workplaces you're familiar with, if you had to lean one way or another, Uh, is it slow down or is it speed up? I think for most companies, it's speed up. And Mark and I are very focused on keeping Facebook fast. I'm I'm sure there are, and I'm sure I could think of some uh, examples of companies that failed by moving too quickly. I'm sure there are those. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got to say it's 10 to one on companies that failed by moving too slowly, slowly. (laughs) right? I mean, I think usually we move to, companies move too slowly. And they're, you know, it's the classic innovator's dilemma. They're usually afraid of cannibalizing or disrupting their current business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's always a mistake. Got it. Got it. Well, uh, obviously well familiar with, with your work, uh, both your work and your foundation's work on option B and on lean in. Um, as I was thinking about those um, two uh, undertakings that you've led, um, it struck me that as those are going to have impact, both now and in the future, um, it's going to be as a result of thousands, I think, of conversations that take place first in the listener's head, the person who's taking in the concepts, and then, like in your Lean In Circles and beyond, the conversations that are created to discuss the, the concepts and the findings. So it's all going to be driven by conversations. I would ask you, as you look over the success that the organization has had, what do you aspire to in terms of all of those conversations? What would you like to make sure that people do and don't do as they talk to each other about these very challenging concepts? Oh my God, it's such a good question. Um, And I think what you're talking about really is at the heart end of my philanthropic work, which is many different things, but for this example, really lean in and option B and conversations at the heart of both of them. So with lean in, you know, what I thought was missing was the actual honest conversation in the world that we didn't have enough female leaders. Mm -hmm. You know, female leadership was a trend that had increased for decades and really came to a standstill a little over 10 years ago. And I walked onto a TED stage and said, the world is overwhelmingly run by men. And you could hear the audience gasp. And the audience was the TED Women's Conference. They were pretty attuned to that. But when you say the world is overwhelmingly run by men, that's something we needed to face. And I don't know if we were facing a while ago, which is part of why I felt very strongly about running, about writing Lean In and starting the leanin.org uh, foundation. We are not comfortable with ambition in women. Ambitious is a positive term for a man. He's ambitious. And it is a negative term for a woman. She's Mm. ambitious. Just that term. And so the lean-in conversation is around the imperative and the benefit to everyone about having more diverse leadership. 
women as well as you know historically underrepresented minorities. And it's about comfort with ambition. I want every woman out there of every background to be encouraged to be ambitious. Now, that doesn't mean every woman wants to be a CEO or wants to run for president. She doesn't have to. But I want to take away what is a systematic discouragement of her to lead that starts with being called bossy as a little girl. We don't call boys bossy. We call girls bossy and goes all the way up through adulthood. And I want to replace that with a conversation mm-hmm. around why ambition and leadership are good for girls and women. And with option B, probably the first interview I did for my book, a journalist said, everyone dies and everyone knows people who die, yet we can't talk about it, why? And I don't know the answer to that question, but option B is an attempt to at least spark some conversations about what is a most basic part of our lives, which is death. When someone is suffering, when someone dies, when someone loses someone, when someone gets cancer, you can immediately silence a room. You want to silence a room, say, I just got diagnosed with cancer. I just lost my son. I just lost my husband, my wife. Silence. So we greet the hardest times in our friends and our associates and our families' lives and our own lives with silence. And option B is an attempt to kick all those elephants out of the room and be there for each other. And the only way to be there for each other is have the conversations. Mm. I know you're hurting and I know I can't take away that hurt, but I'm here to talk about it with you. Yeah. So let's go there for, for it's something that's personally important to me. Um, you know, as in one of the certainly thousands of notes and things you received uh, after Dave died, I, I felt a real need uh, to reach out to you uh, and tell you about meeting him, uh, which was two weeks before he died. Um, I went to Survey Monkey uh, and interviewed him uh, about a client, that, a mutual client that he was helping and that I was helping. Uh, and there was this craziness that day at Survey Monkey. Uh, and he showed up, apologized for being two minutes late. Um, and he sat down in the middle like a glass room like this, but people were running by and everything, and he completely lasered on me. Uh, when he found out that we had crossed paths before, he then talked about you the rest of the interview. Um, but when he passed, I felt the only way to let you know uh, how I felt was how it felt to meet him. So I ask you this. Uh, I thought about this one a lot. You have talked extensively about the difficult and awkward conversations that have taken place with people as they come to you and this notion of what they could say. Um, What have you learned most in general about communicating and connecting with people? Um, What have you tried to do, other than obviously put out this amazing book with Dr. Grant, that, that, that you think will be um, enough going forward for people, like Dave obviously cared about a lot? Well, there's no one answer for anyone, but what I learned in losing Dave was just how often I had got it, gotten it wrong before mm-hmm. by not acknowledging or by offering kind of generic help. You know, I used to think that if something bad happened to someone, you, you say it the first time, I'm so sorry for your loss, but then you never mention it again because you're reminding them. Mm -hmm. You can't remind me Dave died. If you say to this day, years later, 
I'm sorry for your loss. I'm not like, damn, I forgot. Right? Oh, yeah. Of course I know Slip that. My mind. Right. right. And the person who has cancer next to you who's going through chemo this morning, she knows too. Mm. And so I think we have to not be afraid to acknowledge. I think I also learned that, you know, and I used to do this all the time. Is there anything I can do? That's a kind offer. I meant it well, but what is the other person supposed to say? It shifts the burden to the person you're trying to help to think of something. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this great story in my book I included of a colleague I have here, Dan Levy, and he and his wife were in the hospital for many months with a sick child. They eventually lost tragically. And a friend of his texted and said, I'm downstairs in the lobby for a hug for the next hour, whether you come down or not. Just show up. And then in the workforce, you know, I always thought my role was to give people time off. And I really believe in that. Mm. I'm very proud of Facebook bereavement, bereavement policies. I've been talking to other companies about extending theirs. I'm proud of our maternity, paternity, family leave policies, all of this. Um, but so we have to li- give people time off. But encouragement's also helpful because after Dave died and I came back to work, when people said to me, I thought I couldn't concentrate. Of course I couldn't concentrate. And they would say, well, of course you can't concentrate with all you're going through. That was further proof that I couldn't do my job. And so when someone said to me and Mark did this, you know, I think you made a good point today. That was so reassuring. Mm. So counterintuitively, not just offering them time off, which is still really important, but if they choose to be at work and they need to be at work, because sometimes, you know, work was, all of it was horrible, but work was way better than home. Yeah. Once my kids were back at school, thank God for me, I had somewhere to go because sitting in my kitchen waiting for him to walk in was just brutal. Right. And the office was brutal, but less so because I didn't have as many memories of him here. Right. Um, but having encouragement, hey, you're still contributing was really helpful. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard on other podcasts this whole notion of how you learn to deal with it and some of it from your, your spiritual uh, and Jewish uh, upbringing. I was, I was thinking about that as, as we begin to conclude here. Um, some of the most counterintuitive advice I've ever gotten that, that goes parallel along with what you've been saying is from, from uh, my rabbi. Uh, your rabbi told you to lean into the suck. Um, my rabbi has said that when people die and you go to Shiva, um, he said that the, the, the tradition is that, we, is that we not speak to the mourner, that the mourner should speak first because what happens exactly as you've said, and this is where it parallels, is that people become so self uh, focused on saying the wrong thing or on not knowing what to say, that the conversations actually become, as you've pointed out, more burdensome, more awkward, is the word I used earlier. And the point that I had in mind here, as I've heard your advice, is something that Steve, our, our, our rabbi, said. And he said, sometimes the best conversations are the choice at moments to say nothing and to listen and to be present. And to, in essence, show up, but let the person lead. And I, was, I know that. I watched your face, right? I know that's in contrast to how you saw it play out. Um, but that was something I, I wanted to share with you. You've been so helpful here in terms of guidance and thoughts for people. Um, sometimes the listening part, uh, at least as I lost my parents and, and, and onward, has been extremely helpful. I think it's good advice as long as you make sure the person knows you're there to listen. So you almost have exactly. to give the entry like, I'd really like to hear. 
Yes. And then listen. And then so listen. I think it is good advice if you give person someone an opening. It's great. Well, Cheryl, thank you. Uh, as I said at the top, I want to reinforce this is uh, from the bottom of my professional and personal heart. This means a lot. My listeners will be very happy to hear your perspective. Uh, and it has uh, been enlightening and provocative and helpful. And that's what matters the most. Thank Thanks you for having much. me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Tell Me What to Say. Keep an eye out for upcoming conversations with Surgeon Atul Gawande, author Dan Pink, and a rare conversation with the president of In-N-Out Burger, Lindsay Snyder Ellingson. If you like this podcast, remember to subscribe on your podcast service. And if you really like it, that is really like it, give it the highest rating you can because that will help the cause toward better conversations. For more information about the work that I do, please visit drewkugler.com. And for more background about the show and its guests, you can go to kuglercast.com. Until next time, this is Drew Kugler.